Well, good morning, and uh, again, a very warm welcome to you if you're joining us uh, here in person or uh, you're tuning in uh, online. We're, we're grateful to, that you've joined us, and uh, it's good to be together this morning. We uh, are about to begin a, a new series uh, this morning on the book of Jonah, and I'm calling the series uh, Jonah, the Prodigal Prophet. Uh, really ripping off the title from Tim Keller's excellent book of the same name. Uh, definitely highly recommend uh, this book as he uh, looks at the prophet uh, Jonah. And um, uh, hopefully, uh, as we go through this, we're going to see the themes of Jonah and the prodigal son uh, weave in and out of each other uh, as we go through over the next few weeks. Uh, now, the story of, of Jonah uh, will be at least in part familiar to most of you, even if you're not a believer or you don't regularly uh, attend church. There's more than a, a chance that you will know something of the story of Jonah, most likely Jonah and the big fish. Uh, but as we go through it, we're going to spend time uh, looking particularly at the way that Jonah points forward to the crucifixion and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the way that the book of Jonah encourages us to allow God to shine his light, if you like, uh, on some things in our own lives that shouldn't be there. Now, those are the two things that I hope to accomplish over the next several weeks, looking at the cross and the resurrection and allowing God to shine his light on our hearts and think, God, is there anything in there that shouldn't be there? And this morning, we're going to begin by reading uh, Jonah chapter 1, and basically, uh, in this chapter, there are three main characters, God, Jonah, and the sailors. And as we read it, there's going to be some bad news for us in that Jonah does much less, than, uh, less well than we hope. Uh, then, there's, then there's some good news for us, which is that the sailors do better than we hope. And then there's some great news for us in which, in which it is that God is always much more committed to saving people than we realize. And so we're going to see some bad news, some good news, and some great news as we read this story. So Jonah chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out evil against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ships threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come. Let's cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lots fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. 
What's your occupation? And where do you come from? What's your country? Of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you've done? For the men knew he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he told them. And then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to try and get back to the dry, to dry land, but they couldn't, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of God. Now I take this story as a real story that actually happened in history. But I also think that we're supposed to read it as a symbol to us of the people of God. I think we are supposed to see in the character of Jonah, he's the only Israelite in the story. So I think we're supposed to read the story of Jonah as if Jonah is is like a, a picture of the whole people of God. And that doesn't just include ancient Israel, that inc- includes you and me as well. You see, a lot of The Old Testament stories, you can read them. I've mentioned this uh, to you before, but I think you can read them pretty much, you can pretty much read every story in the Old Testament at three levels, right? There is the personal individual level in which you are reading a story about a man or a woman or a family or a child or whatever and learning from what they did and what they said. But that story, the, that personal story is usually, if not always, embedded inside a larger corporate story about the people of God. And so, for instance, when you read the story of Abraham and Sarah, you're not just reading about a couple, you're reading about the people of God collectively, the nation of Israel. And that's true here as well. Jonah represents the nation of Israel, not just himself. And even that corporate story is then embedded into a global story, a massive narrative about what God is doing in this world, how he's going about saving people and redeeming creation and where you and I fit in. And I think you can read virtually every story in the Old Testament at those three levels. And I think this is, this is no exception here. And, and, and so we're, we're not supposed to look at Jonah And simply think, what a petty, vindictive, self-righteous, ridiculous little man. And and lucky we're not like him. I think we're supposed to read the story of Jonah and say, hang on. This is the only Israelite in the story. This is a story not only about him. This is a story about the nation of Israel being given a call by God 
and the nation of Israel not taking it. And it's probably also, if we're honest, reflected in our own hearts that God's people across the ages have been given a calling by God, and sometimes we don't react to it very well either. And that's how I'm going to read the passage. I think it's true on, at all, on all three levels in that sense. And Jonah does not do well here, and, and that is a challenge to us. I mean, just track his behavior through this chapter the first thing that he does is he flees, right? He's given a task and he flees. God says to him, go and preach to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. He says, arise, go to Nineveh. And it says, and therefore Jonah arose and went to Tarshish, which is in the exact opposite direction, right? So he goes down to Joppa and gets in a boat, pays the fare, It even costs him money to do the opposite of what God told him to do. And I think there's even a lesson in that. God tells us to do something. You don't do it. And a year later you think, I really should have done that a year ago. It's cost me to disobey God. That's what Jonah's found here. And and God sent him this way to, to preach to this big city of unbelievers. And he's gone this way. He's run away from the calling of God. Now listen, you can understand Jonah's decision. Because we know the, the only other place in the Bible uh, that, where Jonah is mentioned, 2 Kings chapter 14. And in that we learn that Jonah, the son of Amittai, is actually like a nationalist Israelite prophet. He's prophesying to Israel about the security of their borders and their national military stability. So he's a nationalist. He's a patriot. And he is being told to go and prophesy and speak the gospel, speak the good news of God to the city of Nineveh, which is the capital of the Assyrian evil empire. And now there have been plenty of evil empires in history, but few would be as bad as the Assyrians. I mean, their inhumanity was legendary. People uh, in, their, in, in their nation regularly had their ears, noses, and lips cut off for the most relatively minor offenses. And they used to go into other nations, and they would flay people. They would skin them alive. And they'd pull their tongues out. They would set fire to teenagers. They would force relatives. I, I, I hope there's no children uh, listening. I should have thought that, about that before I began. But they would force family members to carry on poles the heads of their loved ones who'd just been beheaded. And they were forced to, to carry them around in parade around the city. I mean... There's a reason why Nahum 3 1s calls Nineveh the city of blood. The, 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 the Assyrians were barbaric even by the brutal standards of their own age. And Jonah, this nationalist patriotic prophet, has been sent to go and preach about the goodness of God and call to repentance the Ninevites who are the capital city of this evil empire I've just described. So it kind of makes sense that Jonah would, would think, you know, I don't really 
really want to do that very much. Can you see that? I mean, we're not told why specifically. We're not told if it's, if, if it's pride, I'm better than them, or if it's racism, um, or if it's fear. It may have been a mixture of all three. But we can at least ask this question, if God called you to go and preach to ISIS, would you go? Or would you find a friend or a vague excuse or a calendar commitment that indicated that you were supposed to do something else with your life? Right? Like That's what Jonah's doing. Now, there's sin in Jonah's action for sure. I don't want to make light of it in any way. But I think you can see that there is something of that in all of us, isn't there? His reaction reminds us that we can all develop no-go areas in our mind. If, if, it isn't, if, if it isn't a particular ethnic group, you know, it might be a member, members of the gay or transgender community or, or Muslims or, or, or addicts or just people who are very much different than, than you in some way. And so Jonah flees, he heads in the opposite direction, and as a result of his disobedience, there arises this massive storm. And what does he do next? Goes for a nap. Why not? I mean, I've just run away from these bad guys. Okay, I'm just going to have a little rest. I hope that's okay with everyone. And the rest of the sailors, they're all trying to save the ship, and he's just downstairs fast asleep. And they wake him up. What are you doing, you sleeper? Wake up and pray. So the only Israelite in the whole story, the the person who represents God's people, flees from a divine call and sleeps through a humanitarian crisis. And that presents me with a, a, a profound challenge. It might challenge you as well. Do we do that? Or perhaps maybe more strongly, we do do that sometimes. Some of us resist the call of God in a very active way. God says, do that, and we say, nope, see ya, and go the other way. Others of us might resist the call of God in a more passive way. We might just be asleep when the world is going through a crisis. The church says, oh gosh, I'm sure you guys will figure it out. I'm just going to sleep this one out if that's all right. Meanwhile, the world is rushing around trying to solve it. And I think there are moments when we might do both. I think we, we, if we look into our own hearts as individuals and as the church, there have been many times in history where we have not done well. And we could look at our own history of you know, religious conflict, of the way that we've treated certain groups or the way that we've handled the issue of slavery, all sorts of issues in our own history where we could look and say, oh, that we did not do it all well there. And sometimes it's an act of resistance to God's call, and sometimes it's, it's sleeping on the job while you lo- allow everyone else to figure it out. But either way, I suspect Jonah has something to challenge us with. And eventually, they wake Jonah up and they they, and, and they get him. You know, even then he doesn't admit uh, what's happened. It's, it's only when they draw lots that they eventually discover that it's him. It's like, 
he knows it's his fault and he still doesn't tell him when they wake him up. It's only when, you know, the, you know he's irrefutably called out as the guy who was actually responsible that he goes, yeah, all right, I'm, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the God of the sea and of the, of, of the dry land. It's like one of those moments where the, you know, the culprit has actually been caught on, on camera, if, 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 if you like. You know, he, he's denying it, deny it, denying it, and they, and they say, look at this. We know it's you. And eventually he goes, yeah, okay, all right, okay, it's me. It's, it's entirely my fault that we're here. So he doesn't come off well uh, in the story. That's the bad news. Jonah represents you and me in some ways. He, he is a prophetic picture of God's people. The, and the people whom God has sent into the world on mission, either actively or passively or both, because of pride or fear or racism and, or various other things, often do not do that which God has called us into the world to do. That's the bad news. You're really glad you came this morning, I'm sure. But there is good news as well. And the good news is that even though we can be challenged by the example of of Jonah, we should also be uh, encouraged by the example of the sailors because the sailors represent unbelievers in the story and they actually do quite a lot better than we might have thought. Right, we, we are introduced to this group of salty sailors and their captain who are the unbelievers in the story and they put Jonah to shame. And part of the point of the story is that Jonah has obviously got into this boat and sailed away to avoid preaching the gospel to the pagans in Nineveh, but he ends up finding himself on a boat preaching the gospel to pagans. And as he does, he finds that they are actually more moral than he is. He's been expecting, I assume, everybody who doesn't worship Israel's God to be like these uh, flaying, tongue-pulling villains over here. But he then encounters a whole boat of them, and they do better than him. Now, we can see that because they are quicker to pray than Jonah is. And they are quicker to work for the common good than Jonah is. I mean, Jonah is asleep, and he's not praying, and he's not helping. They are desperately trying to save the ship, and they're all crying out to their gods. In other words, Jonah is confronted by the reality that he belongs to the family of God, and he's not as moral as he thought And they don't belong to the family of God, and they're much more moral than he thought. And a lot of Christians find that challenging. You might. You you look around at people you know sometimes and you think they're not worshipers of Jesus at all, but but they're just amazing people. Their their morality, the way they they build family, their kindness, compassion, they are such good people. And I and I and I look at them sometimes and I think, why am I a Christian not morally better? And why are are they so morally good even though they're not Christian? And and sometimes people find that actually almost an objection to Christianity. You might have. You you might have thought, if the gospel is true, Christians ought to be better than other people. 
But I don't think that quite works personally. I think that's like saying if hospitals did any good, then there wouldn't, they wouldn't be full of sick people. No, hospitals are full of sick people because what they do is good, because only sick people tend to go there. It's the same with Jesus, right? Jesus said, I, 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 don't, treat, I don't treat the healthy people. It's only the sick people who need me. So I think that there's an explanation, but it still can be a great challenge. And I think it's personally very encouraging. I think when you see people like these sailors and realize how good they are compared to you or the, or the people of God, it reminds you both of the grace that you still need and of the grace that the world already has, the common grace given to all people that makes them want to do things to serve other people. So you see the, the mariners pray, verse 5, then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. Right? They, they don't know God, but they think he must be up there so, somewhere. Let's, let's call out to him. And they're, and they're crying out, we assume, to different gods. And, and, and they're so committed to it that they even wake Jonah up and say, you've got to cry out to yours as well. I mean, because he, you know, he's gotta, we're, somewhere we're going to hit it. It's like throwing darts at a board. Somewhere we're going to hit the right one. And so let's just all ask whichever God it might be. It, it's what Paul ca- calls they have faith, but not faith according to knowledge. No, Paul there is talking about Israel, but it's the same idea, I think. You can believe in a God but not know him. And you just go, okay, I'm going to fire out prayers, particularly at times of danger. And people do that all the time, don't they? I, I, I need to pray because I, I don't know how else I'm going to get through this. I'm not sure even if I believe in God, but, but I've got I, to ask God if he's there to help me. And so these men pray. And they're also ready to work for the common good. That's the other thing you, you notice about them. That, that Jonah's asleep and they are desperately trying to save the ship. And in fact, they are still trying to save the ship and Jonah's life, even after Jonah has admitted that the whole situation is his fault. Did you notice that in verse 13? Jonah's already outed himself as the reason for the storm and says, you've got to throw me into the sea. And then it says, but the men rode hard to try and get back to dry land. As in, no, we're not going to throw you into the sea. That would be mean. We're going to row and try to save this boat. It's not going to be easy, but we're going to do everything we can to save your life, even though it's your fault. Listen, the unbelievers come across very well in this story. They come across as good men. And of course, we are surrounded, aren't we, by people in this nation and on our streets, driving by us this morning right now, people in our schools, in our, our workplaces, in, in our families, people who may or may not know the Lord, but who live actually very moral lives, and who may well pray, and who, who may well do good, righteous things, and who therefore can present a challenge to those of us who want to think that that Christians are more moral than everyone else. Listen, it's often not true. It isn't true in this story. But the, the lovely thing about these sailors is that at the end of the story, they actually get converted. 
And the reason I say that is because in verses 15 and 16, the storm stops and it says, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offer a, offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows, which is to say, lots of people cry out to God when they're in danger, but not many, very many people when the danger is gone, carry on worshiping him. But these guys do, right? The sea's now calm. And they go, we are now going to sacrifice the Lord and make vows or promises to him on the basis of what, that he has, he has saved us. So I think they get saved. I think that's what we're supposed to read into that. And that means the irony is even larger than we originally realized. Because Jonah, who is only on this boat because he was told to go and preach to unbelieving pagans and see them saved, has now fled to avoid doing it and ended up being surrounded by unbelieving pagans and he's preached to them and he's got, and they've got saved i mean he's like the worst missionary ever you know in pirates of the caribbean when uh, norrington goes to jack sparrow you are without doubt the worst pirate in the entire world well this must be the worst missionary in the entire world because he's not only not preached to the people he was supposed to, but when he tried not to preach, he ended up seeing people saved anyway. And praise God, he ends up bringing people into the kingdom even in spite of the best efforts of his prophet. And, and, and there are times when God still does that, where God sees large numbers of people getting saved, not because of, but in spite of the, of the best efforts of his people to stop him. And that should be a challenge to us, but it should also be an encouragement to us that God's grace is more than the sin and opposition that we find in our own heart. So there's some bad news, which is that Jonah is like us. And there's some good news, which is that the unbelievers around us are like the sailors. Uh, but there is also some great news, which is not just to look at what Jonah does and the unbelievers do, but to look at what God does in this story. And God is the, the major character in this story. And look at what God does and what he is like. And God does three things in this chapter. First, God speaks. That's, that's where the, the book begin, begins. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh. God speaks. He speaks out of nowhere to somebody who, who's not expecting him it, to, to tell him to do something that he doesn't want to do. He is the God who sends missionaries to go even to places like Nineveh, and says, go and tell them the good news of who I am, and then they will repent and turn to me. God wants people everywhere to be saved, and so he speaks, and he sends people to go and preach to them. He sends people prophets. He sends them evangelists. He sends them missionaries. He sends us into the world to tell people of the goodness of God and what God has done in our lives. And, and actually, God's desire for people to be saved is emphasized by that phrase. You notice it three times in the passage. It says, Jonah went away from the presence of the Lord. God told Jonah, go there, and he went away from the presence of the Lord. As if the writer's saying, the presence of the Lord is here, where the mission to unbelievers is, and you're leaving. You're not with me when you're away from the mission that I've called you to. It just paints a, a picture of a God who desperately wants people to be saved. 
So God speaks. The second thing he does is God sends a storm. But the Lord, verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ships threatened to break up. When, when Jonah disobeys God and decides to go in the opposite direction, God do, goes to remarkable lengths to get him back. He, he throws a storm upon the sea to stop Jonah from escaping. And, and you could ask, well, what does this story teach me? Well, one of the things it teaches me is that God is so committed to seeing these, these people saved that he will throw a storm on these people so that, so that he can stop his prophet from getting away, so that he has to come back and, and, and proclaim, and as we'll see in chapters 3 and 4, lead them to repentance. So God sends a storm, and he, of course, calms the storm at the end, as we'll see in just a moment. And then the third thing that God does is it says, God appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And in all of the, the drama of the ship and the storm and the sailors, we could forget that the reason this story is happening at all is because God wants to save the, the Assyrians, the Ninevites. Otherwise, the story could have finished with, and Jonah owed up to it, got thrown into the sea, and the sea went calm. The end. But if that had been how the story had ended, then, then Jonah would never have gotten to Nineveh to preach. And so God appoints a fish to come and swallow him and give him a free ride all the way to Nineveh. Now, if you read, as we often do, um, because it has a big fish in it, you know, we read this story to, 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 to our children. And, 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 and if we do so, and they say, you know, why is this story here, Dad? Why, why does the, what does the fish mean? Why does God do that? I think a big part of the answer is that God included this remarkable part of the story to show us and Jonah and Israel that he is so committed to saving unbelievers and sinners that he will do something hyper weird that will just shock people two, two, two and a half thousand years later when they first hear the story. He will do something so weird in order to preserve a prophet's life long enough so that he gets a chance to go and preach the gospel. That's what the story shows me. That, that's why there's a fish. That's why some of us, even as we're, we're reading the story today, are going, I just find this very hard to believe, this whole fish thing. I mean, it's such a weird story. I think it's meant to make you think, man, this sounds so hard to believe. And it's meant to make you think, can you see how committed God is to saving sinners? That he will send this weird fish to come and swallow this prophet for three days and three nights. And, 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 and give all of you problems as you explain it to your children and grandchildren. What on earth is God doing? And he's doing it because he wants you and your grandchildren to see how significantly God cares about the life of sinners. That he will do this in order to preserve the life of a preacher so that these people can get saved. So the chapter ends with, with a note of hope. Not just for Jonah, but for the unbelievers he's going to go preach to. God is so committed to saving you that he will do 
all this weird stuff with a storm and a fish to make sure you get to hear what he says. And so as we finish, let's just look at how he does it. How does, how does God save in this story? I mean, he, he hasn't yet got to Nineveh, and we'll have to wait until chapter 3 for that. But how does he bring salvation in this story? How does he save the sailors and the Ninevites and Jonah himself? Well, it happens as an Israelite prophet takes the blame and recognizes that it's his fault and gets thrown into the deep on behalf of everyone else. Right? Verse 12, pick me up and hurl me into the sea and then the sea will quiet down for I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. And that's exactly what happens. Verse 5 says, So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. The only way to, uh, of stopping the storm of God's anger that is raging in this story is for somebody to get thrown into the deep on behalf of everyone else so that everyone else might live. That's the only way the storm stops. Jonah realizes it's it's his fault, so he says, I should be the one thrown in. But listen, actually, this dynamic, we we call it it, uh, substitutionary sacrifice in theological language. But this dynamic is the dynamic of friendships and, and, and families all the time. If you love somebody, you substitute yourself for them to stop them from experiencing pain. And you take some of the pain yourself. There's a lot of of mothers listening this morning. I think giving birth is one of the best pictures of this dynamic. You you say, I am going to go through a lot of physical pain in order to bring life to someone that I love. And that's what families do when they're functioning well. That's what friendships do. A true friendship is one in which it's not always going well, but when you, when you need somebody, they substitute your, themselves into your story. They take some of the pain away from you, and they experience some of the pain as a result, uh, the, the, as, as they've taken some of it from you. And when human beings love one another, we substitute ourselves and make sacrifices of, of ourselves in order to help other people flourish. And that's the way this storm stops. And it's appropriate that it does. Because Jonah, of course, is the the one whose fault it is. So he says, this is my fault, so you should throw me in. But of course, the story then points forward to another Israelite prophet who fell asleep in a boat in the middle of a storm. And his name is Jesus. And he is the one person in history of whom you could not say it's your fault. Right? He's like the opposite of Jonah in that sense. Jonah says, you should throw, throw me in because, because it's all because of me. And Jesus is the one who says, none of this is because of me. In fact, it's all because of you. But you should throw me in anyway because when I go into the deep on your behalf, the storm of God's anger will subside instantly. And I will go into the grave, into the deep for three days and nights. And in doing it, I will save you and your lives will be spared. And when I get up out of the, the grave, get vomited out of the grave like the fish vomits Jonah out, I'm going to go straight to the nations and preach the good news of God to them because I want to show you how much God loves you. So this story is of huge encouragement 
encouragement to you if you look at the sailors. It, it, it might be quite discouraging if you look at Jonah and yourself. But it is a source of absolute joy and delight when you consider the Lord Jesus, the one who does what Jonah did and was thrown into the sea in spite of the fact that none of it was his fault. But, but he brought the subsiding and the peace of the storms in your life, in this world, from the wrath of God, and he brought it all to an end instantly in the grave for three days and nights in order to give you new life and victory in his name. So that he and you might together go and miss the mission he's given us and experience freedom and forgiveness from him. It's good news, right? I hope some of you are convinced. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the, the Lord Jesus. We never get tired. Well, I never do. I never get tired of this amazing Savior. What a, a magnificent Savior he is. Lord, we thank you for this book, this, this crazy story, this extraordinary man in prophecy. But Lord, we thank you that, that Jesus has come to do everything that, that no one else could do. Lord, when I look at myself and I see the pride and the, 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 the moral superiority and the judgment that still festers in my heart, I can find myself feeling sad about it. But then I look at the Lord Jesus and I see what he has done in spite of my failings and, and our failings collectively as your people. I marvel. I, I find such freedom in knowing that, that you were prepared to be thrown into the depths that I might live. And it gives me such hope and reminds me of the, the love of God so emphatically. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who, who need a reminder this morning of the radical love of God, of how far God will go to save sinners. Lord, show us, we pray, open our hearts to receive that truth, that you, would, that you would drive those stakes of truth into our souls, knowing how much Jesus is prepared to, to give up in order to love us and save us. Oh, we thank you so much for him. So we pray in his name. Amen.